This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen. I'm Leslie Hinkson. And I'm Gabriel Rossman. Today, our guest is Eric Schwartz, editorial director at Columbia University Press. Eric has been at Springer, Princeton, Cambridge, and Oxford. He's a poli-sci PhD from the New School, but a longtime fixture in the world of sociology publishing. Today, elite self-pity. Our discussion was recorded on October 7th, 2019. So in our first season of the Annex, we talked about Richard Reeves' dream horror. Remember that one? Yeah. It was the episode with uh, Beth Berman. And I'll say (laughs) this. If you don't follow Beth Berman, because she is brilliant and she does amazing work, but she is also easily one of the funniest sociologists anywhere, follow her now you're welcome but we did enough <laughs> she's so funny she's a go-to but i remember we did that book and i loved richard Reeves' book the basic idea is that when we think of inequality uh the growing divide between rich or poor usually what we have in mind is the the super elites the kids who go to harvard or yale or whatever and the one percenters the country club folk versus everybody else right and or the people who like go to Goldman Sachs, whatever, real elites. And what Reeves' book says is he, he paints a different picture. It's one of a top 20, 15 percent or so who are complicit in a system that blocks opportunities for the bottom 85 percent or so while doing a lot to ensure that their kids stay at the top of the pile. And that is our social class. Like if I were to try to translate it into numbers, I'd say it's, you know, that the married college graduates who are living in an economically segregated neighborhood, maybe they make 120 a year, maybe they make 200 a year, maybe their house is 300,000, 500,000, whatever. They're in on the system too, is the argument that Reeves is advancing. And I absolutely, that's absolutely how uh, I see it in my own research too, right? It's like, they're the ones who benefit from economically segregated schools for their children and they enjoy government subsidies so their kids can go to expensive private schools you know they're the ones who get the health insurance where i can go to a dermatologist to remove a planter wart for like 20 dollars. you can't do that in canada you know you can't be like oh i choose to see a dermatologist and give them like what basically costs as much as like you know two two meals at mcdonald's so it's like, it's very privileged to be a six-figure earner in the United States. But like when Richard Rees books came out, everybody was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, me and my neighbor, the dentist, we're just struggling to stay afloat here, right? And uh, a lot of elites feel like they are being uh, victimized by a, a system that requires them to overwork. And they're like, I don't see my kids and whatever I see that I definitely see that attitude among people who make 150, 200,000 a year. Maybe they're worth 400, 600, $800,000 in net worth. I see that in Morris County, New Jersey. I definitely see it among the academia, like professors. As soon as you talk about people like us being in on the, you know, the beneficiary side of inequality, people are always very quick. They're like, no, no, I want to talk about the rich people. <laughs> I, I want to talk about like, you know, the Vanderbilts and everybody who's sending their kid to Yale, but I'm struggling to send my kid to like Virginia or Rutgers 
not realizing that like you're in on it too, mm-hmm. you know? And so I enjoyed that piece. It was a piece that was like, don't feel bad for yourself. You're not a victim. Like you're basically struggling to make sure your kids have like, you know, privileged access and can keep your very high standing in society. You're defending your progeny's advantage more than worrying about if they're going to make it. And I I wanted to just advance the proposition that like as a discipline, as professors, we are completely complicit in the type of inequality that is hurting people in part because we will distract from the privileges that we enjoy or we don't want to problematize our piece of the action. You know, I don't see scholars saying, oh, it's not fair that I can deduct my home interest payments. And I bet you if a government proposed doing it, they'd be super mad, you know, or like, what if the government did something? That's that's not uh, hypothetical. That's empirical. So uh, (laughs) Josh McCabe, who, you know, also a recommended follow. Yeah, totally. You know, he's had no end of fun of talking about the way people have reacted to the recent uh, tax bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. where basically the tax bill famously it lowered rates on corporations but at the personal level it lowered rates on almost everyone and then it you know put a cap on how much you can deduct from uh, state and local income tax and well basically put a cap on and uh, how much you can cap on mortgage deduction so effectively mm-hmm. it lowered taxes on everyone except for people who live in blue states with very expensive homes Mm-hmm. And what Josh loves to point out sarcastically on Twitter, and you know, if you follow him for a month, you'll you'll see him do this, is someone very often from the Nation magazine, right? The kind of magazine that was talking about like, you know, communism, maybe we should give it a try. Yeah. You know, they're they're talking about how this is a middle class tax hike. Yeah. And it's like, it's not a middle class <laughs> tax hike. You know, this is only a tax hike on people who own, you know, million dollar homes in San Francisco. You know, Basically. now the thing is that if you own a million dollar home in San Francisco, that's four hundred square feet. So you don't feel rich. But, yeah. you know, in, in any realistic sense, someone who owns a 400 square foot in, ho- in uh, a million dollar home in San Francisco is rich, you know, totally. and, and someone who's paying, you know, they, they have a, a $200,000 income. And so they're, I forget what the California state income tax is, you know, three or 4% or whatever. And so, and, the, but they can't deduct that from their federal income taxes anymore. They feel like that's a tax hike, but it's like, that's only because they're already rich, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I would push back against okay, that so a little bit. Speaking from an upper middle class person from Maryland, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who just got hit by the bill. <laughs> no, I mean, no. Well, speaking as someone who grew up without money, right? You know what I mean? It's like I, like I, I, like I would say, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, right? And you know, I grew up in parts of Brooklyn. One that's total, I think, is still gentrification proof, and one that is like being rapidly gentrified right now. I mean, I like. I actually, I know tons of people who live in New York, like across, across the borough, right? Who were born and raised there and they're lucky. They're just so lucky that their parents bought their house before the market got huge, right? Mm -hmm. So they're house rich, right? But, you know, like these are, you know, these are people, I mean, friends of mine that I grew up with who are making, you know, they're in their forties, they're making like, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, right? That's not rich, right? Well, that's above average. Right. No, that's not, that's not high income, but they have a huge but it is wealth. They have a huge asset. Yes, they have a huge they do have a huge asset, but try and sell that house in, in New York in order to buy in order to buy another property in New York, you're not gonna be able to do it. Right. So I so I, I think we need to I you know what? Place matters, right? You know what I mean? Place matters. So 
you know, having a 400 square foot apartment with like three kids, right, in San Francisco, that's not going to feel, that's not going to feel rich, right? It's not even going to feel middle class. So I just want us to be clear that, you know what I mean? It's like, we can have this sort of, you know, general sense of, okay, this is how much wealth you need in order to be considered rich, right? But I, I do think that we, that context matters, you know? We love, love, love bringing up the whole fuck nuance piece, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes we do need to pay attention to nuance. Well, there's a very simple rule for determining who's rich, which is anyone who makes 50% more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you see this, right? You know, that like um, during the Obama administration, and there was this rule of thumb, which was consciously articulated at the time, which uh, you can't raise money on anybody who earns under 200 grand, mm -hmm. right? which effectively means that you can only uh, raise uh, taxes on the top, the 97th percentile. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the reason for that is that's the base of people who are politically engaged, especially within the Democratic Party, right? If you're a upper, if you're a couple of professionals, right? You're you're a married couple, both of you are professionals, and you live in a in a big city in a blue state. That's going to be mm -hmm. your income, mm -hmm. right? And so this is uh, basically the peer group for politicians, and they don't feel rich because, like you said, they're living in tiny apartments, they're having to pay private school tuition because public services are inadequate, or at least they're perceived as inadequate, and so they don't feel rich and very often they're house poor, you know? So, but compared to whom, right? I mean, should yeah, we feel exactly. bad for, you know, and I, I think that I, I don't like the term rich for these kind of people because I, it gets into, there's a very real sense in which they don't feel rich. I prefer the term Henry's, which is a term that you sometimes see inequality scholars use high earners, not rich yet, mm -hmm. which I think is a pretty great way to describe, you know, people who live in a thousand square foot apartment, but it's in Manhattan and they make 200 grand. In my opinion, you are 1000% rich if you have a million dollar home, like in home equity, like the bottom third can't even get loans like you have an asset that you can borrow against. You know, you have you have an asset that you could cash out, move to North Carolina, buy a house and have 10 years of like median income to live off of. I don't know. Again, I'm going to push back, right? Because I, when I think about wealth, like I don't even think about wealth in terms of how much money you have. I think about mm -hmm. wealth in terms of your ability, like your ability to translate that into like freedom of choice, okay, right? Yes. And so, you know what I mean? Okay. You got a million dollar apartment in Manhattan, right? And you got this job, right? And you got this job that ties you, right? right. Either to Manhattan, or you're going to have to go to the Bay Area, you're going to have to go to LA, right? So you're like tied, you're kind of trapped, right? Because of the kind of job that you have, and you it can't, you can't really travel to North Carolina and buy it and say, Oh, I'm gonna like sell this tiny apartment and buy a huge house in North Carolina for $300,000. Okay. Right? okay. A couple of things. One, subjective perceptions of not being stressed or whatever are generally not good guides to people's objective financial situation. Surveys of multimillionaires show that about a third of them feel as if they're going to go broke at any moment. And because that's because some people are anxious and that anxiousness projects onto money no matter how much they have. Oh, oh but I'm not I'm not talking about about like perceptions that like, you know, whatever, you're one paycheck away. I'm talking about your ability to, right. to actually move. That's the first thing. The second thing is you can absolutely work in Midtown and live in, uh, you know, Jamaica, 
Yeah. You can absolutely live in Jamaica, New York, not Jamaica, Jamaica. I know. Yeah, no, and not for you, for the listener, because you're from New York. I know you know. Hollis Hills, there are plenty of neighborhoods where you can absolutely rent uh, you know, a fine space in terms of size in a reasonably safe neighborhood, because New York is a pretty safe city and have access to Midtown. The problem is, is that a lot of people with money, they are primarily concerned with maintaining their station Mm -hmm. as opposed to surviving. And maintaining your station is something that I have a little less sympathy for as an economic pressure, as opposed to the people I see who are like, I I don't want to see the doctor because I can't afford it. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you had cancer and you needed money, you could sell that million dollar house and get chemo without the house. You're in a bit of a different situation. Yeah, no, for no, for sure. And like, so that I mean, so basically, because I don't know, I don't know if we actually mention it, but like, we're basically responding to that op-ed piece in, you know, in New York uh, Times, yeah. in the New York Times, the Sunday New York Times by reads, right? Now the rich want your pity too, right? And I mm-hmm. and I think that there there are things here that he totally gets right. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like I'm sorry you know, I sort of can't, don't feel sorry for you. And you were talking about how much you have to work. At least, at least you get compensated for it. Right. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like, I know this guy, he has three jobs, right? He's a security guard. He drives for Uber and Lyft. And he also, he also drives an ice cream truck. And every time we go to the ice cream truck, he's asleep because it's the one chance he has to like take a nap. He gets like three hours of sleep a night. Right. He works. He works hard and he doesn't get the same kind of compensation. So in that respect, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I, I, I don't pity you. Right. But at the same time, I sort of want to push back a little bit on this whole like you're doing it to yourself. Right. It's mm. all a choice and it is a choice. But, you know, as sociologists, like, you know, we also know that there are also forces that also and many times, if not limit your choice, make you feel as though this is a choice that I have to, I have to make. I mean, it. You're. He's right. It's crazy to like sleep like on the sidewalk in order to try and sign your kid up for preschool, right? Uh-huh. You're when you're like, what? Like that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But when everyone in your social set seems to be saying, well, if you don't do that, it's child abuse. Right. I mean, then you're like, okay, right. And it's true. Like, as human beings, as social creatures, you know, this sort of wanting to, like, not just maintain your status, but like, you know, go above your status. I mean, it's a it's a powerful force. I mean, not all of us actually care about it. And those of us who don't are seen as weird. Right. And, you know, and even worse as losers. Right. Because it's true. In American society, if you're seen as not doing as much as you possibly can to climb some kind of ladder, you are kind of seen as a loser. Well, like to echo what Joe was saying earlier, just because somebody has the habitus that they feel that they can't live anywhere else but Park Slope, that's Mm -hmm. not quite the (laughs) same uh, reason to feel bad for them Mm -hmm. as them having actual materials constraints, right? Having habitus that demands a certain... Mm -hmm you know, lifestyle to which you become accustomed. It's, you know, there's a tiny violin for that. Yes. Like, what's the difference between a rich guy who's like, well, I got to stay in this country club and like the (laughs) the $150,000 earner who's like, well, I got to live near the Whole Foods. 
I don't see the difference in, you know, I, my kid has to be in this economically segregated school. It sounds a lot, it sounds a lot like my kid has to be at Deerfield Academy. You know, from the eyes of my students, they would look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It's just rich people wanting to make sure their kids are in rich kids stuff so that they can have a leg up on them. That's true. Although, you know, I think sometimes we go a little bit too far. I mean, it's like, I think about it, like my daughter's high school, it's less socioeconomically diverse than, you know, whatever. What's the name of that place where the Obama, the private school that the Obamas went to? What's that called again? Sidwell Friends. Sidwell, right? You know what I mean? It's like, it's insane, right? I mean, it's a smaller school, but you know, it is more socioeconomically diverse. It's more racially diverse, right? And it's amazing to me. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that we, I think that we do have ideas about, not, I'm not even talking about the super rich, right? I mean, like I live in Bethesda, right? You know, I rub elbows with the 1% all the time. And one of the things I'll tell you is that the vast majority of them would be happy with their kids going to the University of Michigan, going to Berkeley, going to UCLA, going to University of Maryland, right? Going to South Carolina, right? Going to Pitt. Like, but most of those are top schools. Yeah. I mean, every school you listed, uh, you know, maybe one or two exceptions, every school you listed, the median SAT score of new students is like 1,300, 1,400. Yes, but I'm referring to, I'm, I'm referring to what Reeves writes in this, in this piece, where he seems to be saying that these people are just so, like, driven by elite status that, like, it, like rather than let their kids go to a good public college or public university they're like you know what i mean they're scrambling to try and get them into an ivy and what i'm saying is i i think that that's a very skewed perception of who these people are okay so they're not scrambling to get their kids into ivies but they're scrambling to get their kids into one step down right so if you look at the uh, varsity blues scandal by far the most common school was usc mm -hmm. which is you know nowhere near well it's 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 not at the kind of Ivy League slash Stanford level, but it is one step below that. And, you know, we had uh, two students bribe their way into UCLA. So, you know, which, and UCLA is comparable to USC in terms of uh, student selectivity. And, you know, again, we're a notch below Harvard, but we're only one notch below Harvard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, it's like saying it, it's still a relatively high status. Maybe they're not obsessed with super high status, but they're obsessed with pretty high status. I think from the bottom 50%, it's all the same. You know what I think to tie this back to our first conversation is I think that more women should be marrying men without college degrees who have <laughs> jobs that they love and then they have children who are happy and then they can write in their college application essays my dad never went to college. Yeah. My mom <laughs> has a PhD. Being yeah. able to have parents like this allowed me to understand that college is actually a choice, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I am choosing college, right? Yeah. Not because I have to do it, but because I know that I have options. I'm telling you, it is a win-win. It's a win <laughs> situation. High school, high school grad, hot, likes to do dishes, lets you sling the chainsaw. 
There you they go. Can, uh, they can they can write an application essay about how deprived they were that they had to take uh, Subway five stops to get to the Whole Foods. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the you know the the way my my take on this. I mean, I and I can say this as somebody who just moved to Wilton, Connecticut. So I'm part of the part of the problem. <laughs> um, you know, is that you're? I think everybody is always kind of measuring themselves up to those who are slightly ahead of them. And I think that this demographic of which we're all part of that you're talking about, I think is really is in, in a bind because we all, we don't have inherited wealth. We um, all work in professional ways. So there is that sense of, of, of accomplishment and achievement to get where you got to in the first place. I mean, so mm-hmm. that you could, we all, you know, know people who we went to high school with or whoever who are doing better than us, but also plenty, plenty, plenty more who are not doing mm-hmm. as well. So there isn't a, a sense of, you know, merit and, and achievement in getting to where you've gotten and that there should be some kind of benefit that comes with that effort. But measuring that, you know, but also at the same time, having generally equitable values and knowing that you're above the 50%, it's a, it's, it's a real challenge. It's not, I think, anything that is solvable and we have to just sort of hold our nose and try to do what we think is going to be the best thing that that is for us and that we could individually live with. I think the pernicious part is it's true. Like to be in New York, you sense that you really had to do something to be here and survive here. And you, you kind of want to pass on the benefits of those successes to your Mm -hmm. children. And I think that's the pernicious part Mm -hmm. is when you hope that your lifetime achievement will somehow give your kid a leg up. And Mm -hmm. my sense living in Morris County, New Jersey, is that's the struggle everybody has. Mm -hmm. Like everybody's like, okay, I made it and stuff, but everybody's very worried about, can my kids stay at this station? Mm -hmm. And that causes the desperate struggle and the sense that they're barely making it and stuff like that. Because, you know, there's regression to the mean. It's hard to replicate success when you're sort of, you've managed to land in the top 5% or, or 10%. And I think like, unlike the wealthy of, you know, the, of, you know, the stereotype of like the PG Woodhouse, um, you know, Bertie Wooster type who is just living off of some inherited pile, um, mm-hmm. you know, chances are during the course of our lifetimes, we're going to wind up spending down everything that we've earned mm-hmm. um, and are not going to be able to pass anything, you know, beyond some furniture to our kids that they will um, discard <laughs> immediately on the, on the sidewalk. Immediately. Uh, If we we go like this, absolutely. (laughs) You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Eric Schwartz from Columbia University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.